0: We'll remain standing and let's take out our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark's Gospel to chapter 2 this morning. We're moving right along through Mark's Gospel. Chapter 2, we'll read together the first 12 verses, follow along as I read them. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearing this morning. Uh, Bless the one who preaches. Bless we who hear. Father, we, we ask that we would rejoice as we consider these words this morning, your word to us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, beloved people of God, this morning there is an old saying that says, Actions speak louder than words. And it's true, isn't it? People can say a lot of things. It's easy to say, I love you. It's easy to say, I forgive you. It's easy to say, I'm sorry, and so on and so on. But to use another old saying it kind of makes me nervous that so so much of what I know is contained in old sayings but there's an old saying that says the proof is in the pudding or more accurately it says the proof of the pudding is in the eating it's easy to say I love you but acting in love is what proves those words to be true it's easy to say I forgive you But if we don't change the way we act toward the other person, and if we continue to hold things against them, we haven't really forgiven them. It's easy to say, I'm sorry, but unless our behavior changes, it's hard for the other person to believe that we were really sorry. Words are easy. Proving them by actions is more difficult and more important. And our Lord Jesus this morning is going to demonstrate that or a variation on that theme uh, as we look at his continuing ministry in Galilee as we come this morning to chapter 2. And as I mentioned last week, as we come here to chapter 2 in Mark's gospel, we are about to experience a marked change in emphasis in Mark's telling of the record of the ministry of Jesus Remember, reflecting the, the Apostle Peter's recollections and tellings and preachings of these things to Mark in some way. In chapter 1, remember that, that especially the later verses, we saw Jesus' authority demonstrated. But as news, remember, about him spreads and draws the attention of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, we will see Jesus' authority disputed now. We're going to see his authority challenged. Also, we're going to see an escalating record of that challenge. or see escalating challenges in several areas. This morning, it begins very subtly with a group of people who dispute really in their hearts. There's no record that they even say anything to Jesus or dispute with him. But then as we go on, we will see challenges uh, to to Jesus that are made through discussions among themselves, these who are listening to Jesus. Then we'll see these challenges being made to Jesus' disciples. And finally, we'll see them confronting Jesus himself. And then as we get into chapter 3, we will see that his enemies will finally now begin to seek how to destroy him. So this is going to escalate as we go on. But this morning, not so much. Not so strong. This morning there are just three things that we're going to consider in regard to Jesus' authority. And that's a topic, a theme that's continuing on from chapter 1. We'll see his authority asserted. We'll see his authority questioned. And we'll see his authority demonstrated. And this chapter that we're in, chapter 2, I've sort of thought of as the why chapter. Because in each of these little passages that we're going to look at what happens the the, the challenge that comes comes through the word why why this why that why are you doing that why are they doing that and we'll see that as we go through it we'll even see it this morning but we want to start by seeing jesus authority asserted in this passage last week remember we saw jesus heal a man of leprosy a a singularly dramatic and unheard of healing And after he did, after he healed this man, remember Jesus very strictly, very bluntly told this man not to go out and tell anyone about it, but to go to the priests, to go to them and go through the appropriate procedure given by the law for anyone who might be healed from a skin disease such as leprosy. And so what did this man do? Well, he went right out and told everyone about what Jesus had done. Now, to a certain degree, we might say that that is understandable, considering what a big deal it was to be cleansed from leprosy, but still, it was a blatant disregard, blatant disobedience to what Jesus specifically had told him to do and not to do. And Mark told us that as a result of that, because of this man disobeying and going and telling uh, what had happened, that Jesus' popularity skyrocketed to the point where Jesus and his disciples were not able to go into the cities and the towns of Galilee anymore, but they were forced to conduct their ministry out in the wilderness, away from the towns, and that the people would would come out to him. And we mentioned last week that the, the draw of the people to come to Jesus was very much on what Jesus was doing, the miracles that he was doing as he would raise uh, or or heal people, as he would uh, cast demons out of people, as we read earlier in chapter 1, that those were the types of things that drew people. And that's true today. Those are the kinds of things, showy things, the miraculous things. Those are the things that draw people. But Jesus had a different emphasis, and we'll see that again this morning. So, In the opening of chapter 2, we see that after a time of that going on, Jesus finally returns to Capernaum, that city there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus was using as his base of operations. And verse 1 tells us, though, that things really hadn't changed, that they were the same. Because it says in verse 1 that when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. The word got out. And verse 2 says, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So the report gets out that Jesus has returned and the home where he is staying, which may have been Simon and Andrew's home, it may have been James and John's home, it may have been some other home, but that is swamped with people as Jesus returns. So that it says there was no more room, not even at the door. You couldn't even get in. People coming to see what Jesus would do. A healing? Will he do another healing? Will he cast out another demon? Maybe he'll heal a leper again. People coming to see. But what Jesus does shows us not only Jesus' authority that we're looking at, but also Jesus' priority. Because look at what it says right at the end of verse 2. It says, and he was preaching the word to them. See, they're coming for the the miracles. Jesus is preaching the word. He was preaching the word. The content of Jesus' teaching is the word of God. It always is. He has the unique situation, though, that whatever he says is the word of God. But it's significant that when Jesus battled the devil in the wilderness back in chapter one in the earlier verses, he used scripture to do so. He quoted scripture to the devil. And now when he preaches to the people, he is preaching the word to them. That's so instructive for us, for me, uh, for you choosing a church that you're going to go to and me standing here week after week A reminder that what needs to be done is the same thing that Jesus did and that is to preach the word to them. To preach the word to you. Once again, we see that that is Jesus' focus. His priority is preaching. Preaching, and we've seen the content of it back in the earlier verses of chapter 1. Preaching concerning the gospel of God, concerning the coming of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and the command to repent and believe the gospel. And in verse 3, though, as Jesus is is preaching to this crowd that has come and sort of mobbed this house, in verse 3, we learn of an interruption in Jesus' sermon. Now, I've been in the ministry for a long time, and I've had sermons interrupted by various things, services interrupted by various things, by crying babies. That doesn't bother me. I hardly even notice that anymore. Uh, by disruptive adults, by technical difficulties, and once even by my own illness. But I've never had a service interrupted in the way that happens here. While Jesus is preaching, a noise suddenly heard overhead. Then pretty soon some pieces start to fall. Uh, begin to crumble. Then, then more and more, and eventually a hole appears in the roof. Certainly by that point, Jesus has stopped speaking and all eyes are looking up. That's so funny. Whenever any little distraction happens, and I see it up here, you don't see it sitting there. Whenever there's any little distraction, all the eyes go right to it. And I can be up here talking and talking as long as that distraction's going on, people's eyes are over there. And that could have been what was going on here. People looking to see what was going on at the ceiling of the house. Well, what has has happened, Mark tells us, is that, verse 3, he says that they came, and they are not identified there, but we'll find out who they are soon enough. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So these four men, friends of this man, relatives of this man, having heard that Jesus was back in town, they do as many of the others were doing, and bring this friend to Jesus. Obviously, these men are, are faithful friends, quite faithful. They're quite determined. And they're quite sure that Jesus can heal their friend. He is a paralytic, we're told. Maybe from birth. Maybe as the result of some disease. Maybe the result of some injury. We're not told that. But when they arrive at the house where Jesus is, they find That it is so crowded that they cannot get the man into the house. Not even through the door. But as I say, they are determined friends. And verse 4 tells us that. It tells us that when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Just a quick couple of notes about houses in this part of the world during this time most of them were built with a flat roof on top and it was a functional roof it was a roof that could be used for uh, entertaining on if it's a bigger house or it could be used for eating or resting or sleeping up on the top of these these roofs and a second thing is that there would very often to get to these there would be a staircase along the outside of the house going up to the roof and so as we read this, that, that these men take their friend up to the roof, they didn't have to sort of tie a line on it and throw it over the, a peaked roof and drag him up. They just carry him up the stairs. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, the, the roof was flat, and they were, would have been made of mud and clay, mixed with, with, with straw or hay and sticks of various kinds, and this would all be supported by beams that, that held the roof up from below. And so these men, carrying their friend, not able to get in through the front door, carry their friend on his mat, it tells us, probably just a straw mattress that he laid on, up onto the roof, they tie some, some rope or some strips of cloth onto the corners, and then It says that they removed the roof. Literally, it says they unroofed the roof. And Mark says that when they had, Mark says in our translation here, says when they had made an opening. Literally, the words there give the idea of when they had dug through the roof. It says that they then let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. These are the kind of friends to have. They carried the man from wherever he lived to this house. They carried him up the stairs. They're unconcerned about the efforts that were needed. They were even unconcerned about the damage that they caused to the house. As they did what they did in order to get this man before Jesus. It is clear that by their efforts, that they firmly believed that Jesus could and would heal their friend. But he doesn't. At least not right away. As Jesus sees this happening, we're told that Jesus saw something else. In verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, it's interesting. That Jesus saw their faith. Now, the faith of the man is not singled out, the the paralytic, though it's likely that he's included in the there of chapter 5. Jesus sees the faith of all of them. And clearly Jesus is going to act here based on that faith. And there is in the Bible a connection between healing and not just the faith of the person who is healed, but the faith of others. In fact, in the case of of demon possessions in in the New Testament, it is not the faith of the possessed person, but the faith of a relative, most most often, that makes the difference, that is pointed to. But in healings, there is usually faith that Jesus can and will heal them in the person uh, who is healed. But the response of Jesus, again is not to heal this man. As I said, not yet. But in verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, at first, that might seem very odd to us. It seems very disconnected, doesn't it? Uh, But in the Old Testament... And I think we mentioned this last week with the situation with the leper. Sickness and sin are are quite closely connected. It was very commonly thought and taught by the the rabbis in the Old Testament that sickness, especially this kind of catastrophic type of malady, was the result of some sin in the person. Now, we have to be careful because the Bible nowhere makes that one-to-one connection. In fact, in one situation, remember, with Jesus and his disciples, that connection is explicitly denied. Remember the blind man. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus' answer is, nobody. But because of the tie between sickness and sin, there was also a connection between forgiveness and healing. And it always comes in that order. Psalm 103.3 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. And in fact, those terms sometimes get used almost interchangeably. Listen to Psalm 41.4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. And even more closely in Jeremiah 3.22 It says, return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. So there's that connection. Again, it's not necessarily a one-to-one sickness for sin connection. We have to be careful of that. But not a non-existent one either. I should make a note here that we should never assume, we should certainly never tell anyone that their sickness is because of some particular sin. We don't know that. And doing so is to put ourselves in the place of God, an unwise and dangerous thing to do. Now, we do know that at the base of all sickness is sin as a result of the fall. And that may be being reflected here, it may not. There's certainly nothing here to suggest any link between a sin, a particular sin in this man's past or present, and his condition. But Mark says that Jesus saw their faith, and that he then said to the paralytic, this thing that doesn't seem to even follow at all, he says, your sins are forgiven. And by the way, just a small note about the the pity, the compassion of Christ as he says, son... Your sins are forgiven. Or child, the word can mean. Your sins are forgiven. The word that then, in addition to a term of affection and endearment, it's also the term of a superior acting with both authority and benevolence to someone else. Jesus is, is reaching out to this person as being compassionate to him, as we know he did in so many situations. But in saying this, and consider... And consider the import of these four words that Jesus says to the paralytic. These four particularly, your sins are forgiven. When he says that, Mark is is recording a major escalation in the ministry of Jesus, in his demonstration of his authority, in acting with both authority and benevolence. But this is something different. This is something more than we've seen before. It was probably also quite a shock and not a pleasant one to the four guys who had carried this man to Jesus. They brought this man to Jesus for him to heal them. To heal him, rather. They had brought him to town on a mat. They had taken him up the stairs. They had dug through the roof. They had lowered him down in front of Jesus. Joyously expecting Jesus to do a great miracle as he had done for so many others and that they would walk home together with their friend and Jesus looks up at them and he looks down at their friend and he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, wait, Jesus. That's not what you were supposed to do. Something like, rise, take up your bed and walk. That's what we were expecting. But Jesus says what he says. And in doing so, Jesus is doing two things. Two things. First, Jesus is being very clarifying by putting the focus on this man's and every person's in that crowded house. Every person born into this fallen world, Jesus is putting his finger on their, on our greatest need. The need of forgiveness of sins. The need of dealing with our sin problem. More important, beloved, than your physical or mental wholeness is your spiritual wholeness. That's that's the point here. Jesus says it, it is better for you to enter into life with one eye than that with two eyes you go into the hell of fire. In Matthew 18, 9. It is better to be a paralytic here and never walk your entire life and yet to have a true and right relationship with God than to be physically healthy but spiritually dead. More important than your physical fitness is your fitness for heaven. More important than your bank account or your education or your social standing, your anything, you can plug anything into that. More important than any of those things is how and where you stand with God. Nothing is more critical than the issue of your sin because it is that which separates you from God. A, a physical malady, such as being paralyzed, a mental uh, deficiency, an emotional deficiency, will not keep you out of heaven, but sin will. We do not need healing, beloved, as much as we need forgiveness. And we need forgiveness desperately. This man did not need to be able to walk, but he needed to have the guilt of his sin removed. And Jesus, with a word, does it. Deals with it. And Jesus is first putting a light on that fact. And then secondly, he is demonstrating his authority to do that. He's demonstrating his authority to forgive sins. Again, an escalation from what we had seen before. We've seen him show his authority over demons. He's shown his authority over sickness. He's shown authority in his teaching. Now he is showing authority over sin. He's showing the authority to forgive sins. He's asserting that authority here. Which, as we'll see, is a contention that he is equal with God. That's the bold claim that he is also making here. That, therefore, as he is equal with God, therefore he is God in the flesh. And that is something, that point is something that is not lost on others in the crowd that evening. And it leads us to our next consideration. Having seen Jesus' authority asserted, now we see Jesus' authority questioned. It's not lost on these others in the crowd. And these others, Mark tells us, are the scribes. Mark says that they were sitting there as well. In verse 6. The scribes were the experts in the law. They were the the PhDs of the Old Testament law. They are the rabbis. They are the teachers. They, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, make up the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And they are there. And what they heard troubled them greatly. But at least here and now, they did not speak out verbally against it. But verse 6 tells us that they were questioning in their hearts this is troubling their thoughts and their questions that they're they're asking in their hearts are at least formally right questions at the beginning of verse seven why does this man speak like that and the end of verse seven who can forgive sins but God alone now there can be two answers to to their questions One is that this man is deluded, this Jesus, because he is taking to himself an authority, if he is not who he says he was, an authority that he does not have, because they're right. Only God can forgive sins. The scribes are absolutely right. The Old Testament teaches that clearly. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And in Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist says, But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Only God can forgive sins. Only he can forgive sins because he is the one wronged by every sin, ultimately. He is the one who is offended when we sin. We may hurt others, we may damage ourselves, but ultimately we are offending God with every sin we commit. Only God can forgive those sins. Even the prophets of the Old Testament did not forgive sin. They could announce the forgiveness of sins, but they did not take it on themselves. 2 Samuel 12, 13, Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nathan didn't say, I forgive you of your sins. You are forgiven. But Jesus here did not just announce the forgiveness of sins like Nathan did, the sin of this man, but he pronounced it on his own authority. He spoke of it as an accomplished fact. He says, your sins are forgiven. So one answer to the scribe's internal questioning here, in fact, the answer really to every single other case which could be conceived is that someone who claims to be able to forgive sins is misrepresenting himself, and worse, he's misrepresenting God by claiming to speak with that authority. That's one of the possible answers to this here. And that's where the scribes land. That's where they think. And they say it right in the middle of the two questions. They say he's blaspheming. To blaspheme is to make an affront to the majesty and the authority of God. And to claim to to do what only God can do is the claim to be equal with God and anyone other than God who presumes to be able to forgive God is an affront and causing an affront to God and is blaspheming. And so that's the answer that the the scribes come to. But there's another option, isn't there? Oh, it's highly unlikely. It is so unlikely as to be nearly impossible, but not totally impossible. It could be it is possible that someone who comes and who presumes to come with the authority of God to forgive sins is God. Come in the flesh with a human nature. They say, why does this man speak like that? Well, maybe it's because he is God. Now, the scribes don't go there and, and oh, they would, they would be right. We would certainly agree that anyone who would make such a claim would have a very steep hill to climb to prove it, right? Actions would speak louder than words. If he claims to be able what God to do what God does in the invisible realm especially in the court of heaven to forgive sins, we should expect that he would be able to do what only God can do in the physical realm, in what can be seen and what can be heard. Again, actions speak louder than words, Jesus, the scribes are thinking. And that is where Jesus goes with this. And we see, thirdly, Jesus' authority demonstrated. Mark says that the statements within the hearts of the scribes, just like the faith of the hearts of the men bringing the paralytic, are an open book to Jesus. The omniscience of God is the omniscience of Christ. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And he, in verse 8, here in Mark chapter 2, says, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he addresses it. And he does, as he so often does, he answers their question with a question of his own. And it's in verse 9. Which is easier he says to the, to the scribes, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? That question has caused people some difficulty from time to time. Which is easier? Well, we can give them a little help by the way Jesus asked this question because he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, to a man who cannot walk, to a man who has had to be carried here by his friends and let down on a bed through the roof. What's easier to say to him? Either one, actually, if, if they are in fact accomplished, are great acts. Everybody would agree with that. But which, Jesus says, not as easier to do. He says, which is easier to say to this man? If Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, well, that's all well and good. But you or I could say to someone that their sins are forgiven, and that wouldn't make it so. And more importantly to this discussion here, we would have no way to verify whether it was happening or not. It's not provable here and now. And the same is true for Jesus. It's not provable to those hearing Jesus say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. It's not provable whether his words had any effect or not. But if Jesus were to say to this man, this paralytic man, rise, take up your bed, and walk, and if Jesus were in fact a charlatan, if he were in fact blaspheming God, It would be apparent to everyone immediately when nothing happens. So to answer the question, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can check that out. Actions would speak louder than words. And so Jesus is saying, I'll show you that I have the authority to do both. I'll prove the easier by doing the more difficult. That you may know, Mark writes, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the easier thing. To show you that, to prove that, to let you know that, that you may know that, You know, God the Father, they all knew, had authority in heaven to forgive sins, but now God the Son will demonstrate that He has the authority on earth to forgive them as well by doing the thing that is harder to the scribes, the things that can be seen, the things that can be measured. By the way, this is the first time that we see this title, see there in that that verse, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. If you look back in Daniel chapter 7 and you you read about the Son of Man, you'll see that it's all about authority. It's all about the identification of the Son of Man. This is the first time Mark uses it. He'll use it more often as he goes through his his gospel. But so that you can see, so that you may know that the Son of Man has this authority, Jesus says, turns again to the paralytic. Remember him? (laughs) Remember the paralytic that started out being about him? Now it is again in verse 11. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Any connections in the minds of the people there, the paralytic, his friends, the crowd, the scribes, uh, between sin and sickness, between forgiveness and healing, are all satisfied now. And Jesus has proven once again that he can do what only God can do. When he says to this man, rise, take up your bed and walk, and immediately, Mark says, he does it. He has done what only God has the authority to do. and He does it immediately. And notice this, just just a little extra here, no charge for this. Not only is the, the source of this man's paralysis removed, whatever it was, but also the atrophy of his muscles is removed. The coordination, the balance, which was also lost. Or if this man had been lame from birth, he had never had. They are all resolved instantly at Jesus' words. And the man immediately rose, he picked up his bed, and he went out. And he did this, Mark is careful to say, before them all. They all saw it. With the result in verse 12, the second half of verse 12, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Beloved, the theologians there that day were right. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus has shown that he has the authority to forgive sins because he's shown that he has the authority to heal people. He has the authority over sickness, over lameness, over paralysis. He has the authority to not only heal physical maladies but to forgive sins which can lead to only one logical conclusion and that is that he is God. And we should remember that, that not only does he have the authority to forgive sins but we can rejoice that he has the desire to forgive sins. He has the grace To forgive sins. And through his death. He has the means. To forgive sins. And he has granted to us. The means to receive that forgiveness. By giving us faith. You know people attend church. For many reasons. Maybe their marriage is on the rocks. Maybe their children are out of control. Maybe they're in financial hardship, financial ruin. Maybe they have an illness themselves. Maybe chronic, maybe terminal. Many people come to church for all of those reasons. But let us not forget, beloved, this morning, why Jesus came. Let us not forget what is most important. Let us not forget why Jesus died. Now, Jesus can help your marriage. He can help your children. He can help your finances. He can help your illness. And maybe he will. And maybe he won't. That's not why he came. He came and he promised. And what he will, without doubt, remedy is your greatest need. Your need for forgiveness. Your need to be placed in a right relationship with God the Father. Your need for forgiveness is your greatest need. Without, Without the forgiveness of sin, the meeting of your other needs is inconsequential. Jesus' greatest gift is to say, your sins are forgiven. And he says that to anyone. We trust in him believe in him for that today and to that let us say amen father we thank you for your word this morning we thank you for christ we thank you for him coming for him being sent we thank you lord for his authority over not only sickness not only over demons not only over nature but his authority to forgive sins his authority to proclaim son daughter your sins are forgiven we pray Father that if there are any here this morning if there are any listening if there are any watching who have not looked to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins if they're looking to Christ for any other any other benefit, Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would work in them through these words and remind them of what is most important, that their sins be forgiven. And may they, by your grace, call upon Christ for that. In his name we pray, amen.